So uh, I was going to start by saying a few years ago, there was this TV show that was out, and it got super popular, and then I realized, yeah, no, that was almost 20 years ago. <laughs> I still think of myself like that was the prime of my life, and it was 20 years ago. It's all downhill. Um, but the show started with this noise. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. And then the voiceover would say, last week on 24. And you would follow up with what Jack Bauer had done. Did anybody get hooked on that show? At least the first few seasons were really fun. Um, ten, it was it only 10 years. Okay, good. I feel spry still. Um, so that was the first show that I can remember where you had to have a little bit of an update. I think it's much more common now, but they had to sort of reset the table as to where you, where you were in the story arc. Um, well, we are going through the book of Acts this year, and uh, though it might be helpful to reset it every week, we just don't have the time. Um, but if you remember, the, the Spirit has been poured out. They have spoken in the various languages of the many people gathered. Um, and uh, as Jeremy preached, I guess it was three weeks ago now, who knows, um, last week was confession, repentance, the week before was snow, the week before was spirit, so it's all, four weeks ago now that you did, they gathered together, they were gathering together in houses, they were sharing everything that they had, and the Lord was adding to the number, um, and that's where we've been, and it says in the, at the end, the tail end of, uh, chapter 2, that, uh, verse 43, all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It just says that kind of blanketly. And then we get into chapter 3. And chapter 3 is kind of a, a core sample of those many signs and wonders. This is one sort of pulled out and elevated. So we're going to work our way through the whole chapter today. But it doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. Uh, next week, Jeremy will pick up. And the story, this same story, will continue. Um, so that's, if you want to know where, where we're at, where we're headed, and where we're going, that's it. Um, so with that in mind, the Spirit has been poured out, signs and wonders are happening. Let's see, let's peek into the Word, see if the Spirit might enliven our hearts and souls. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Uh, let me stop real quick. Um, so this was supposed to be the first Sunday of the month, and we got snowed out. And so we didn't get, not only not, did we not get the sermon, we didn't get the deacon offering. And that's our alms. Every first Sunday of the month, our deacons take up alms we, we continue this practice that we see here, and that will happen today after the sermon today. The deacons will take it up, so just be prepared. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, yeah, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. 
I love this. In 40 years, he's been laid up, and as soon as his feet and ankles are strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer and thus he thus fulfilled, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. Saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, here is the rich pasture of your word, and here gathered are your hungry sheep. Would you lead us through your word to eat and be filled with the goodness of Christ for our souls? We pray that for hard hearts, that your spirit would come and break them afresh and anew. We pray for those hearts that are here wounded, weary, and sore, that your spirit would come with comforting grace, and that you would both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted is our prayer this morning. We have such deep needs to believe, receive, and rest on Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. Would you give us eyes to see our condition truly? And then meet us there in the miracle of Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.
miracles like this healing in Acts 3 don't pose, shouldn't pose much of a problem for people of faith. Uh, We tend to believe these little stories in Scripture because of this one story, the one miracle, the big miracle. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then a floating axe head or a soaked altar going ablaze, or those things become easy to believe. This lame man healed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that God came in the flesh, was tortured, suffered, died, buried for three days, and rose again. Because I believe that, whatever, everything else is easy. If God can bring back his slaughtered lamb to life eternal and raise him up to be seated, well, then everything else can happen because those are of minimal importance compared to new life in the broken body of Nazareth. But there there are all sorts of other healings we can and even should be skeptical of. So not long ago, it's probably been six or eight weeks ago now, I was asked by one of our members to meet him in his office and his business for a joint conference with an international minister of a more charismatic commitment. Um, I was asked to come be a part of this, observe, ask questions, and talk to determine if this member and some of his family could wisely partner with and participate in one of this uh, minister's campaigns, healing campaigns, crusades, if you will. And this pastor, sweet, sweet gentleman, um, told us his history, his practice, his upbringing, um, shared what he did, and told some amazing stories of people being healed of serious physical, mental, and spiritual ailments. And then he looked at me, and I loved him for this. Because if you've spent any time with me at all, one of, you'll know that one of my favorite things to do is make it as awkward as possible for the people in the room. I just love to the, make it weird. Um, and so this guy um, has shared his own story, and then he says, but you are a Presbyterian minister. What do you think about modern-day healing? Like, he's starting the fight now. And I thought, man, that's a bold chess move. I didn't see it coming. So I put on my dancing shoes, and I gave him a super nuanced answer, and I said this, yes, of course we believe in healing. My own family has experienced physical healing. My grandmother was healed of numerous cancerous tumors um, after we convinced my Baptist pastors to come anoint her with oil and pray for her. And that took a lot of convincing, but they came. She had, we had x-rays of it, MRIs of cancerous tumors that were there one week, She was anointed with oil, went back for follow-up, and they were gone. I believe in healing. My own son, Justice, was healed of something far less severe. So uh, we pray for healing weekly. Uh, An elder will usually stand up here in a time of prayer and, and pray just like Jonathan did for healing. We pray for it in our staff meetings. I pray for it personally. But here's what I don't do. I don't take off my jacket and smack people with it so that they flop around on the ground and then they don't need a wheelchair anymore. I don't do that. I don't blow on people. Um, I did tell, tell the gentleman this. I said, it does seem that many who practice such outlandish displays seem to me 
to be charlatans and hucksters, people who line their own pockets with the limited resources of the poor and oftentimes ignorant. And I also said this, I'm not proud of it, but I said if those people really have that gift, it'd be handy for them to walk through St. Francis and St. John once a week and heal the people in the hospital beds. And to his credit, this, uh, this Christian brother fully agreed that the TV showboats are heretics and not faithful ministers of the gospel. And so, though we disagreed on some things, we found the common ground of the gospel, that God still heals people, that it's real, but this is where the power of what we agreed on, that healing points beyond itself. It's never just about the person being healed in Scripture. It points beyond itself. Biblical healing directs our gaze to something, better yet, directs our gaze to someone greater than the event. It's probably not a true story, but it's an old story that the, the famous, one of the early theologians, Thomas Aquinas, paid a visit to Pope Innocent II in the mid-1100s. And Pope Innocent was counting out a large sum of money as Thomas walked in. And the Pope said to Aquinas, he says, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas allegedly replied, True, Holy Father, but neither can she now say, Rise and walk. Again, it's likely a fabricated story, but it gets at the connection between desperation and restoration. Wealth and ease repel true faith and provide the most fertile soil for every sort of heresy. So think about where the church has once been great and is now um, empty, buildings filled with nothing but dust and pews. It's all over Europe, right? The Middle East, coming soon to a church near you in America because we have been captivated with wealth and ease. We're no longer desperate to be restored. Christianity continues to thrive among the world's most marginalized because you have, you have to get to the end of your rope to trust in something as outlandish as resurrection. A person has to plumb the depths of an empty soul to discover that forgiveness has to come from somewhere else. I can't find it in me. Miracles of physical healing, as true as they are, um, and as true as they are recorded in Scripture, and I believe to this day, when they happen today, they come as a mercy of God to refresh and restore his child in the gospel. And yes, we should pray for healing. We should expectantly pray that our good Lord, the great physician, will heal people. The miracles, though, recorded in Scripture serve a deeper, larger, more expansive purpose. In Scripture, they were attestations to the veracity of God's claim that his word was true or as proofs that the prophet speaking those words was his faithful representative, that they were to be trusted as God's emissary, which is why, if you look at the, if you could map on a sort of a, a map, if you could map on a map, if you, 
If you could add dots on the map of Scripture as to where the miracles occurred, you'd see the largest cluster, the, the most heavy grouping would be around the work of Christ. That's where we see him, do, where God acts in the most often ways to heal people. And there's something uh, afoot there. The word was true. The word that God sent, the word Christ was true. It had been sent from God. The word must be listened to. So the main point of the gospel writers regularly including the signs and wonders swirling around Jesus was to present a case that he's to be believed in. He's, he's to be followed. He's to be watched. God is active and working through this man. Uh, Luke wrote both his gospel account and this, the book of Acts. Uh, it's funny, they're both as long as you could fit on a single vellum. Uh, so as, as, as sheepskin sewn together can only get so big before it becomes unwieldy. Luke takes up a whole one and Acts takes up a whole one. And so it's no surprise that he parallels this account in Acts 3 with one from Luke, the gospel, chapter 5. There, uh, Christ in Luke 5 called his first disciples of which Peter and John were numbered there. And then shortly after, he heals the paralytic who's brought to him by his friends, the one where they, they dig the roof out. And what's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful in that they dig the roof out, he sit, the Pharisees are around, they lower their friend down before Jesus, and Jesus has pity on him, and he does what? Forgives his sin. I'll forgive your sin. You're forgiven. You're still laying there, and your body's still broken, but your sins are forgiven, which ticks the Pharisees off. Who does he think he is forgiving sins? And which Jesus says, the, the Luke records, um, so that they would believe, he says, rise, take your pallet, and walk. At which point, he gets up and goes away. Your sins are forgiven. That's the miracle. But now you can walk, too. And that's kind of where we're at here. It's fascinating that this gentleman can now walk, but it's better by far that he has faith in the name of Jesus Christ. So again, like I said, in Acts 2, the Spirit of Christ was poured out on the people of Christ. Now the disciples weren't just called, they were also empowered. And we hear about those signs and wonders, and then here in chapter 3 is, is one of those. The couple of interesting notes to be made in the first 10 verses of Acts 3. This man was born this way and fully depended on others to care for him for more than 40 years. Jeremy will have that for you. Next week, it says he, he was more than 40 years old. It's my age. And his friends would take him to this position daily for alms begging as people were entering the temple. Just lay there all day, shaking a, a can, I guess. You know what that means? This is just a striking thought that I had this week. He's been there for 40 years every day. And Peter and John, and the rest of the apostles, and Jesus walked by this man. How many times? How many times did Jesus go to the temple? How many times might he have walked by this man begging for healing? Begging for money, actually, not begging for healing. And Jesus could have healed him long ago. Why didn't he? Why does Jesus heal some diagnosis, but not others? 
Why does he give healing grace, healing faith to some, but leave so many of my family members untouched despite my pleadings, despite my best efforts, despite all my prayers? Why? Why does God heal some but not all? Because God is good, and Jesus is perfect, and the Spirit is more gracious than I dare believe, and my heart is so prideful and hardened, and I ask the wrong things, and I have no understanding, and my faith is so fragile and brittle. God is never ungracious. He's never unloving. He's never unholy. So when he walks by again and again without acting, I have to believe he's doing something better than I think he should. Somehow the lack of healing is gracious and holy and loving, despite my doubts of that. His friends set him in the same place daily. This normal stage where he acted out his desperation was, we're told, outside of beauty. Scholars aren't even certain which gate could be meant in the reference of the beautiful gate. But the best guess is a gate whose doors had been overlaid with bronze that had patinaed to a beautiful bluish-green color over the years. And he would spend all day watching the, the normies, the healthy folks, going in and out of worship. Allegedly, this gate would be near... Um, the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. So most folks could pass through there. Um, and so he had the, the, the broadest scope of potential helpers. And he would spend all day watching these folks go in and out, begging that they believed in God enough to help him gain enough to eat some that day. The cultural mindset at the time was that he was disabled due to sin either his own sin or his parents' sin. Think of the account in John chapter 9 with the man born blind from birth. The disciples asked that very question of Jesus. Jesus, was this man, was it his sin or his parents' sin that he was born this way? It's easy to read through the data of the text and not have your heart break sometimes just to try and get at what's there, but I think we should feel very very sad for this man. I think he's had a terrible, painful life. He was outside of the beautiful gate, in fact, outside of beauty. He was trapped by sin, whether his or his parents, he didn't know. But he knew that much, that he was trapped by sin. And the saddest of all, he was resigned to it. How many hopeless days must he have faced? Think of the panhandlers that many of us drive by. If you head this way and go to Harvard, there's often folks out there. Um, and we all know, don't make eye contact. Make sure the doors are locked. Uh, kids, uh, look at your iPads. Like, we know, yeah, don't look at them. That, that makes it weird. We have these unenforced laws to protect us from having the marginalized of our society thrust in front of us because we hate the uncomfortable feeling of seeing their need coupled with our inability to cure or provide for them. We could all name some celebrity pastors who laud their healing gifts and make a mockery of God and a mockery of the church. The only antidote for us, I think, is to see ourselves not as healers, 
but to see ourselves in this man's position. We're the helpless ones. We should be the desperate ones. We should see ourselves outside of beauty until the Lord acts to make us whole and dances with us into the temple of Christ, the sacrificed one, where we learn that his resurrection is our restoration. We learn the true hope of Christ is made known as it leaks out of the earthen vessels of us, the church. I think the church needs to stop playing at prosperity, playing at heaven in the here and now, and double down in humility on our inability to save and restore ourselves. There's more, so much more here too, and we can't get at all of it, but it's at least worth noting the history of Peter and John, the crazy history of Peter and John, who strike me as sort of an ancient pen and teller. One of them won't shut up. One of them never utters a word, but they're always there together doing crazy things, retelling ridiculous stories. Time and time again, they witness the miracles of Christ and his healing. Uh, these two are singled out as front and center in some of the most amazing stories. And I think it was probably only because they saw Christ do the miraculous that they were willing to attempt to do the same. And I think that preaches to us, too. If you have felt the touch of grace as God has restored you to wholeness, how cold must you be to hoard that grace and withhold it from passing it on to another? I need to say that again in another way. If God has healed and touched and restored you physically or more importantly spiritually, what are you doing with that? Are you reaching out to touch others? Are you reaching out to bless others? Is there a way for you to say, rise, stand, and walk to someone? Brothers and sisters, we, the PCA, we, the Reformed, we, the theologically astute, are embarrassingly poor at sharing with others. Our annual statistics for the PCA say a single adult convert takes an average of 163 members. That's not good. Jesus sent his disciples out in twos expecting fruit. I, I love being reformed. I just don't want to be more Calvinistic than Jesus. And Jesus seemed to evangelize. I love Calvin. I really love Jesus. There's a sense in which we have to reach down. We have to open up. We have to speak more. But I want to know I want you to know this, faithful Christian living is about much more than quietly leaving a tract in a bathroom at a restaurant. I find those and I throw them away. Um, don't ever give a tract to a waiter unless it comes with a $100 tip. Faithful Christian living is about much more than obnoxiously and awkwardly evangelizing people who just want you to be quiet and leave them alone. There was a, an angry guy who had come to the campus at Arizona State and he had a big poster made of all the sins that were normal on a college campus. And he would stand there with his bullhorn and tell these uh, students that they were gonna burn in hell forever. He would preach to them, yell at them, scream at them that sin was leading them to hell. And I went up, not to him, because you couldn't get close to him, he had bodyguards. I think I could have taken him, but... 
I went up to an older guy who was kind of supervising in the back, and I said, what are you guys doing? He said, well, we're preaching the gospel. And I said, that's baloney. I haven't heard good news in any of this. All I've heard is hell and judgment and damnation. Now, the funny thing was, it shouldn't be funny, but it was funny. The students that this guy's screaming at were getting their selfies done, pointing at their favorite sin on the guy's poster board <laughs> while he's screaming at him. And I thought, I like them better than him. We don't have to do that. Please don't do that. All through the New Testament, a different model of evangelism is painted for us. Listen to Peter. Here's Peter much later um, in his life, in his epistle. He says, uh, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. The underlying assumption there is that evangelism comes from faithful living with such zeal, such joy, such awareness, such concern, such love for neighbor that the watching world goes, yeah, people don't live like that. What is going on with you? Why are you so much the way you are? That's the way evangelism is painted as happening. Now, Peter didn't storm into Solomon's portico screaming about healing. The crowds ran to him. Holy cow, what is going on here? That is the way for us to live, church. Yes, God has to intervene and change hearts. But more often than not, we're not faithful to reach out to others. And so they don't come to us asking. Pray the Lord changes that in, in us, in me, in this city. Lastly, here, outside of beauty, it's important to see these faithful Christians are still actively participating in the life of the community. Maybe, to fast forward into the present age, maybe they're not asking us because we've become too insular in our little Christian ghettos with our own Christian lingo where every friend we have is already like us and they never make us uncomfortable the Jerusalem church had vastly increased in numbers, but even with a big, active, new church, Peter and John didn't withdraw from the culture of their society. They continued to be actively engaged with those institutions and with people outside of the Christian community. So here's the encouragement for us. Wherever we can participate in Tulsa's loves, her cultural offerings without yielding to Tulsa's idolatries, we can, and in fact, we must go to the gathering place as an act of worship to care for someone. We're a hub for music and arts. Go to the museums. Go to concerts. Go and enjoy what the Lord is doing here. Eat at splendid restaurants and at Food Truck Wednesdays at Guthrie Green. And as you join in what our city loves, look for ways to bless others and care for them as Christ would. Care for them as servants of the servant. And so as they walked with this healed man towards the temple. People are taking notice. They're pressing in, filled with wonder. And in this gathering crowd, Peter sees an opportunity to explain and clarify what's happened. He begins by pointing out it wasn't due to their piety or power that he's now able to walk. But it was due to Jesus, the servant of God, verse 13. 
who gave this man perfect health. The way Peter phrases this is meant to remind us of Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 14. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The apostles have only served this man what God had handed to the world. They served him, Jesus. Silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you. Notice how he frames and phrases this part of his speech He does it in such a way that their corporate sin becomes glaringly apparent. You delivered over to Pilate when he decided to release him. You denied the righteous one, choosing instead a murderer. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead and raised this man as well. You, you, you. And their corporate sin starts to weigh them down. And he says, the God of Abraham, your God, is God the Father of Jesus, is mine and John's God, and he should be your God too. So Peter's using the simple and sacred text of their Jewish scriptures as a matter of service to the men of Israel, which is where the worldwide mission was planned to launch. Jerusalem, then Judea, then beyond. He's trying to lead them to understand that something even greater than the miracle of a man healed has gone on here. Consider all of the symbolism, the imagery that their grand story contains that Peter says is all fulfilled in Christ, the long-promised one. Peter was saying that it's always been the grand scheme of God to bring to completion All of the promises of the Hebrew scriptures in and through Jesus and his church, which is how he ends his speech in verse 25. He's only healed because the servant was glorified in his dying and his rising. And that's the best miracle. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. After laying out all of their sin and pointing his finger in their chest. Peter calls them brothers. Look at what you've done. You did all this. Brothers. Denying Jesus is something that Peter knows about deeply. But unlike them, he had not acted in ignorance. He can call them brothers, not just because of their shared Jewish heritage, but because he walked the same road that they're now on. And you know, Peter's famous denial and the cock crowing, and him looking, locking eyes with Jesus, and just being broken. We know there's a time of silence where, can you imagine that, that weight, that regret, weighing Peter down? And he does what many of us would do. He goes back to what he knows. He gets himself lost in business, like many of you men and women. Throws himself back into the old trade of fishing. He's out on a boat weighed down by the shame and regret. He's trying to drown, drown it all, silence the voices. But he hears a voice call to him from the shore. And his buddy John behind him says, that's Jesus. That's Jesus on the shore. And we love Peter, right? We love Peter because he never thinks. Peter acts. Hey, I want to walk on the water. 
Sounds awesome. No, Jesus, you'll not wash my feet. Peter's a moron. We love him for that. Peter's on the boat. John says, that's Jesus. What does Peter do? Dives right in, swims. I can't wait to get there. Jesus fix him dinner, uh, breakfast, fish for breakfast. That sounds odd. But he fixes all of his deniers, breakfast. Even the one who swore on a stack of Bibles he would never leave him. And then the Lord pulls Peter aside and bathes him with special grace. Peter, do you love me? Oh, Jesus, you know I love you. I'm so sorry. You know I, you know I do anything for you. I tend my sheep. Peter, do you? you love me I love you right Jesus goes out of his way that he gives him a chance to reclaim what he denied he denied him three times do you love me I love you good I got it I got something for you to do he bathes him with this grace and restores him and the bath of grace is what Peter is calling this crowd to verses 19 and 20 repent therefore turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. He's telling them that just like this man, trapped on his mat outside of beauty, that God is reaching down in Christ through them. The simple and sacred symbolism on display is that they too, you too, are lame. And they and us need healing far beyond fresh legs. Peter knows that the faith of an empty hand Reaching out to God is the only way for them to rise and walk. Letting go of sin and taking hold of grace, or better, being taken hold of by grace, is infinitely more valuable than silver or gold. The absolute best thing that could happen for them is forgiveness, far greater than fixed ankles, knees, and hips. Christ, he says, is coming to restore all things. Restoration of all things, bodies, soul, creation, and beyond. That's the road that we're headed on. I think, and I read uh, C.S. Lewis's Miracles this week. I, le- I read uh, a book that you gave me, Eric Metaxas' Miracles. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there to read. Um, I don't think there's any special insight, but I, I haven't found it anywhere else. So I'm really nervous about sharing this because... If nobody else has said it, odds are it's heresy, and you should burn me. But I'm going to give you my thought on miracles. A lot of people say um, miracles are God hitting pause on the system and stepping in, changing the laws of nature and physics for a moment, and then they return back to uh, their entropic states. Um, But I think the better way to understand it is that miracles are brief glimpses where things are right for a moment. Where we see in an instant the way it will be one day forever. Where perfection breaks in to ruin. Miracles are restoration intrusions. Places where perfection intersects with brokenness. In a miracle, we see what was intended in Eden. In a miracle, we see what awaits us in the restoration of new heavens and new earth. That's the way I think about miracles. Now, again, it's not common. So if we figure out it's wrong, give me a chance to repent. Okay, and that's where we find ourselves today. Many of us are sick, sick in body, sick in mind, sick in spirit. 
It's not hard to turn on your TV on any news channel, right or left, center, if there was such a thing, and find that we live in a disjointed world, that creation groans, politicians scream, and injustice seems to be around every corner. We need the restoration of Jesus to break in. We need a miracle. We need 10 miracles. We need 10,000 miracles. And in Acts chapter two, God pours out his spirit. And in Acts three, spirit-led disciples act in that power to change others. The point is this. We must continue to pray that God will intervene, that he will act. And we need to always be willing to be conduits of miraculous grace to those around us. You and I, like Peter and John, might be the people God uses to bring the miracle of restoration to someone. I'll close with this. There's a new theologian in the world, a new Calvin, Calvin Brodus, who said this last November in an interview about coming to faith in Christ. If the church was full of saints, it wouldn't be right. So if you find someone trying to find their way back home, the natural thing to do is to be warm, to be welcoming, to open your arms and say, brother, we accept you for who you are and what you're going through. Come as you are. We know you've been doing wrong and you want to get right. And we want to help you get right. We're not going to throw stones on you when you're trying to get right and walking back into the church house. That's what's running people out the church right now as we speak. That's Calvin Brodus Jr., you might know him as Snoop Dogg, who came to faith in Christ recently. Praise the Lord. Now, I would love, as a, as a teaching elder in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, I would love to visit with Snoop. I would love to help clarify and clean up some of his theology. I would like to help him say it the way I think it should be said. I'd like to nuance it and fill it with technical theological terminology with a reformed emphasis on grace. <laughs> but I think that would blunt the point he's trying to make. I think what he said to the church is along the lines of rise and walk. I, for one, need to hear that. I need to believe that I should say that sometimes and that God will often act in healing grace. So rise and walk, CPC. Follow your God as an active body going to culturally uncomfortable places. Rise and walk as a compelling community that people approach in wonder. And rise and walk as a gentle bride that reaches out with Christ and blesses those who respond. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, bless this reading, this preaching. Bless this living of your word. Bless it that your name might be great, that our friends and neighbors would see a group of people so diverse, odd, and strange, so filled with love and compassion, filled with joy and mercy, that they turn. They turn to you for restoration and healing and grace. Make us hungry. Make us hungry to share the good word. Make us hungry to serve. Uh, make us delighted and excited to bring people into the beauty and wonder of our risen Savior. 
whose sacrifice atones for all our sin, who makes us whole in him, bound to him in the spirit. Do this, our Father, and receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people. Amen. William, you coming to say something?